1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. ATT.
2: This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback.
4: One, two, clink. Cheers! Cheers! Cheers. That's literally my line. Who says clink out loud? Cheers, girls. One, two, three, clink, or one, two, clink. One, two, three,
5: cheers. Welcome to Crying in Public. Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome back to another Crying in Public episode. My name is Sarah. Look at us.
4: That's the first time we've ever introduced ourselves, like, properly.
5: I know, right? You guys are welcome. That's a once-in-a-lifetime thing you're ever gonna get. Yeah. Um, and welcome to another episode of Binge Week. We are posting two episodes per day this week, or a lot of episodes, just so you guys have binge-worthy content that you can go back on and enjoy whenever you want. Uh, usually you post every Thursdays, but this is it's special. We're, you know, um, we're ringing out the end of our season with a bang with a binge. Um, make sure to follow us on social media at Crying in Public Podcast on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. And you can listen to us more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump right into it.
4: We are so excited to have on the podcast today PJ Morton, multi-grammy winning R&B and soul singer, songwriter, performer, and producer. Alongside running his own record label and working as Bruno 5's full-time keyboardist, collaborating with some of the biggest names in music, and serving as Solange's former music director, he has led a critically acclaimed streak of six self-released and self-produced albums. Winning 10 Grammy nominations and back-to-back-to-back wins, his first ever NAACP Image Award, and Train nominations, BET Award nominations, he has also features on some of the most well-known talk and television shows in the nation, such as NPR's Tiny Desk, Super Bowl Halftime, The Late Show, and more. Beyond Music, he's a pillar of his community as an activist and advocate in New Orleans, and also has a weekly trivia show called The Culture, which celebrates Black art and entertainment. What a bio. Thank you so much for coming on, PJ. What, a, what an
3: introduction. <laughs> yes. You sound all right, thank
4: you. <laughs> Quite a bio. So just to start off, as someone who has seemingly touched every aspect of the music industry, from being an instrumentalist to music director, record label owner, and a songwriter, across multiple genres, how did you initially get your footing in the music industry? What drew you to artistry in the first place?
3: Yeah, well, I think what drew me to artistry or, or music in general was my family. I had a musical family. My dad was a singer. He played piano a little bit. Well, I was blessed enough to have these guys at my dad's church that were also songwriters, which was something kind of rare in New Orleans. You had musicians, but not necessarily people who write wrote songs. And um, so that gave me a path. I started to see how they were writing songs, and that that is really what made me want to, First play keys, which I started doing at 8, and then started to write songs at 14.
5: Yeah, that's great. You've collaborated since then with so many big names in music, some of the biggest. Um, If any, who would you say have been your models of success and or musical inspiration, either growing up or today?
3: Well, yeah, both growing up into today now, I mean, I can say Stevie Wonder, uh, somebody that I've collaborated with that um, was my... Uh, Blueprint before I met him you know like I was a I was a kid who was playing keys and writing songs and singing and there was no better example than of that than Stevie Um, and then so full circle you know to be able to work with him and now you know have a relationship with him um, I say for sure he's one of uh, the biggest inspirations and like models of success for me another one is Jermaine Dupree who right after college Um, I became one of his co-writers and like co-producers and uh, just went through his whole school of Jermaine Dupri. And to see he just got another number one Uh, yesterday with pressure with Ari Lennox. And for him to have a number one in 1992, it's like a crazy story and certainly like a model of success for me. So those are two guys that come to mind.
4: You talked about how you did songwriting and you were a keyboardist. So being involved in so many different aspects of music, how did you know you first made it? Like, what was that moment where you're like, "Wow, like I'm in the industry, I'm successful." What was that first marker of success for you?
3: I think there've been plenty, like, different, like, what we, in the Maroon world when we played the Oscars, you know, when we played the Grammys, I was like, "All right," especially the Oscars. I'm like, "All right, <laughs> this is kind of this is kind of crazy." Like, I didn't I didn't have this in my cards. Um, but like to play some of these festivals, we play Rock in Rio, where it's like a hundred thousand people. I mean, you can't wow. see how many people there are. And I remember one time I looked and I saw my reflection in the uh, in the drum riser, the you know the plastic they have around the drums sometimes. And I saw my reflection. And I'm like, how like how am I here? Like this is crazy. Like that I that I made it to this point. So uh, that that you know those are some where I kind of like reflected in the moment.
5: Uh, I did want to ask you and this might seem kind of like a trivial question but in those awe-striking moments where you performed in front of so many people at festivals or the Oscars did you ever get nervous or how are your nerves throughout these aspects?
3: Yeah I mean my, my nervousness is always right before that point I mean like once you're in once you hit the first note or you start it's like all right I'm in the game so like let's let you know let's go but like walking up to the stage or when you're about to go on a tv show you know something live like snl or something you're like all right like you get all the nerves but when it's time to go then it's like all right i'm doing what 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 i do but yeah I, i still sometimes depending on what it is still get nervous like right before
4: no. So we have to ask, because we know this is one of the biggest markers of success as a musician. How was it playing the Super Bowl halftime as we have Super Bowl coming up, obviously? I can't imagine the yes. nerves that comes along I'm with that.
3: Yeah, there's nothing. I don't I don't think, you know, like none of my peers, like unless you do that, you don't really know what that feels like. I mean, it's, it's the biggest thing in the world that you could think of. It's literally the biggest stage that you could play. Uh, there are not any concerts where pe- that many people are watching you at one time and even being in there at that time, you know, d- d- like the 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 preparation of the Super Bowl too, I think adds to its uh, grandiose, you know, thing is it's like so many, so many big preparations for it, having our whole set there and then going in there and rehearsing on the field. It's just it's crazy and it's instant also. You know, everybody's watching right then. So you know how you did, like in the, like immediately, <laughs> you know.
5: Yeah, you get that immediate yeah. reaction. So you're like, oh yeah, it's
3: very sure. up to yeah, you go to your phone right after just to have
4: time. Looking like, at tweets. <laughs> so what's the preparation look like for that? Was it more of someone planned it out for you and you showed up and rehearsed and performed? Or were you guys involved in every step of the planning process as well?
3: Yeah, it wasn't set up. I mean, we handpicked the people that would do the, who we wanted to do this the staging and then um i mean down to the engineer who's going to be mixing the stuff that you that you're uh you know recording and playing and um and so it you know i, I guess all of the things that you have to get approved though is what's just like you got to approve every single thing down to your clothes they're like all right take a picture what are you wearing you know what i mean and it, it just feels I've never been to a place where there was more like security too, like steps of security, like Super Bowl just doesn't play at all. Uh, But we had to do weeks of rehearsal um, and and um, and then first just rehearsal in a room, figuring out our set list, uh, which was totally up to us. You know, we just had uh, they give you a time limit that you can do. But, you know, the set list is totally up to you. Uh, so approving that, and then bringing on all the things you know. We had pyro, we had all these things um, that you have to think about after the music. Uh, but we had so many great people around us as well that could execute. Uh, but the ideas, you know, came from us as a band.
4: That's truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I can't imagine. Exactly. I
5: always yeah. watch on TV, and I'm like, I just wonder what's going through your mind in it's this crazy. moment. It's crazy. So. Tell us about your transition from touring to joining Maroon 5 as their keyboardist. You know, how did that come to be? What was the audition like?
3: Yeah, well, I, so, you know, my, my Maroon 5 story is, is a little different because when I went in, um, I didn't know how long it would last. I didn't know that I would be an official member or anything. Mm-hmm. And this was 2010. So it's crazy. Almost, you know, 12 years ago in July. But I went in and I had never had an audition in my life. And they told me to learn Sunday morning. I learned Sunday morning. We played it. And, you know, by the way, Maroon 5 have been a band since eighth grade. So they had never auditioned anybody. So I think it was awkward for both of us, like, all right, what do we do now? You know, like, I don't know what to do with my hands, you know. And so, and so I played that and they were like, well, what else do you know? It was people waiting to audition, you know. So we just started jamming. We ended up jamming for like 30 minutes. And they had to see the people who were there, canceled the second day of auditions. And then we went on this tour. My first show was like live, a full live show on, on live TV. So it was like, I went straight in. And um and I thought it might just be a tour for that album. And um, once we came around to the next album, uh, that's when the, the black guy started popping up in the pictures, you know, and it was official. <laughs> like, where does, this, where does black dude come from? Like, you, I,
4: <laughs> yeah, I always see the t- I always see the tweets. People still do that now. But yeah. <laughs> but
3: it's been twelve years. People still say that. But imagine like that first year. They like, hold on, I know I'm not tripping. I didn't but yeah. Uh so, so 2012 is when it became official. And you know, those didn't feel really different because I was a part of the band even when I was touring before I officially got into the band. Um, but it, it was just amazing to start experiencing all those things as an actual you know, band member of Maroon 5, it was, it was like, it changed my life.
0: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories. And we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with the 7 every weekday. So, follow the 7 right now.
1: <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower.
0: If you dare
4: speaking about your big moments um especially in your solo career with your first grammy win following multiple no, um nominations such an incredible feat so what was that feeling like how was that playing into your story especially as a solo artist
3: yeah for me i know i know people you know every year or whatever you know talk about whether they care about the grammys or don't care about the grammys for me i wanted a Grammy, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like when I looked up all the musicians that I looked up to the, that, when it said like, yo, this is where you're at because this is your peers voting on you. So this is greatness, not just from an audience. This is from your peers in music saying, yo, I think this was the best thing. I've always wanted a Grammy. And, you know, uh, I've been winning recently, but I lost a lot, you know, like, uh, I think like 10 nominations or something before I, won one so that made it much sweeter for me because at that time you know I used to plan parties and stuff at first like yo we're going we're going out after the Grammy and then you lose and then it's just like all right uh so so the, the year I won I didn't plan anything at all I'm like I'm not doing this to myself again and we won but man it was the best it was the best feeling ever because it it just felt like
4: I put in the work, you know,
3: and it, w- and, and it was time, and um, it just felt amazing.
4: And I usually follow the pictures and winnings after, especially, like, uh, wanting to celebrate Black artists. I remember seeing a picture of you and your daughter holding a Grammy, and, they just, and they just oh, yeah. heart. it just warmed up. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, Pepe, that's the year I brought her for Say So. Um, she was my date, man, and my girl. I got to bring up on stage with me, and I made the whole audience say, hey, Pepe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's uh, so, so Yeah, but no, nah, she'll never forget that. And it's so crazy because I just talk about wins and losses, but I was nominated for three that, that year. And the first two, they just, look, when you lose, they go by real quick, right? So that loss, and I was about to prepare her, like, you know, Pepe is not all, of, you know, sometimes you don't win, you know, like this is, somebody's got to lose. And um, and I won that third one. She, she told me I was crossing my fingers like I was, I was, and man, I was so happy that I won for her because I'm like yo this is this is such a special moment so we will share that forever we talk about it still
4: speaking of your children do you see any of your musical talents kind of being passed down to your kids is it something that you guys do together or you guys have talked about or do you see that sparkle of music in your kids as well
3: yeah all of them have some of that you know I don't force it I mean I guess I learned from my experience like it was never forced on me like even though my my my, my family was in the music it was like not forced, It just, they made you want to do it because it seemed like it was the fun thing to do. And so I've done the same thing with them. So sometimes they'll hop on a song with me or um, they're on a new song that I'm, that I'm working on now or Pepe wants to sing sometimes, uh, Jakai is a drummer. So I, I, I let them do their thing, but they all have uh, the talent. You know, it's just how they want to use it. Cause I do believe that creativity um, can show itself so many different ways, you know, and it doesn't have to be music, you know, that could come because Peyton's a, a she can draw, you know, and paint. So I'm like, whatever you want to do, it seems like P3 wants to, you know, he makes YouTube videos. I'm like, you could be a, a director or write whatever, you know, I don't. Uh, I think it's just open for them, but they're all so creative already. I can see it.
5: That's great that they're involved in your music career, but you know that's great that you're giving them like the freedom to kind of choose their own path. That's really great, and they get to go through all of these sure. really cool experiences with you. That's amazing. So yeah. kind of transitioning towards your um personal story, you eventually made the transition from LA back to your hometown, New Orleans in 2016, correct? Mm-hmm. Tell us your thought process behind that transition. Yeah, I was
3: I was feeling um I was feeling crowded in LA. I mean, I, I felt like um outside of my band, outside of Maroon Five and my family, I just wasn't feeling like, um, like it, was, it was vibing with me, you know? And I, I, uh, I realized at that point, because the reason I moved to LA was when I joined Maroon and uh, to show them that I'm here with you, because they would have to fly me in for rehearsal, fly me in for, but after Adam had the voice and we were on TV and I could know my schedule, I'm like, I don't really have to be here. So let me just rethink this, you know? And where could I be? And still accomplish the things I want to accomplish uh, because I kind of felt like it w- it started to have an effect on me creatively and otherwise you know and um, once I started to think about the possibility of it um, I really said you know I think I'm gonna go home and and uh, and focus on my homeland and try to build it and and create there and really uh, I was in a bad place I was a writer's block I just couldn't really be creative I felt like going back to the place where I actually fell in love with this and like wanted to do it, uh, could connect me, uh, you know, get me back to that place. And it eventually did. So I'm really grateful that I was sensitive enough to like move, you know, um, not just physically move, but move like when I felt like this wasn't the right, thing anymore, you know.
4: Talking about inspiration and also New Orleans, growing up in the church as son of a pastor and a gospel singer and being entrenched in the culture of New Orleans, how do you feel that that inspired your music or kind of wove its way through your sound or your messaging?
3: Yeah, I think more than anything, um, the integrity of it. I mean, you really got to respect music in New Orleans. Like you understand its importance, you know, um, that is drilled in you uh, because it's a part of everything we do. It drives our culture here. Uh, so I think for me, it's um, uh, it's why I've always taken the craft seriously, you know? Not like every song doesn't have to be deep or serious, but I mean, as far as the creation of the music, I've just always taken it seriously because, you know, I think being a, a musician in New Orleans is like being a doctor or a lawyer. Like they, they, you respect respected in, in the sense that you have a gift that can change culture, you know. Um, so I've always been really clear on that. Um, as far as like sonically, uh, I never uh, heard my sound as like a New Orleans sound, but I've always implemented like horns, you know, uh, different things like that. That is just a part of my my DNA, you know. So it always finds itself in there somehow. Um, and uh, yeah, but I think New Orleans represents um, just non complacency more than a sound. It's like I'm going to just, you know, march to the beat of my own drum. And I think that was built in me. And that's why I didn't always take the road uh, most travel. You know, I always kind of took a detour because as New Orleanians, it's like, you know, we're just going to be who we are. Church wise, it was always the sincerity of it, um, the connection of it. Like, you know, uh, for a gospel song or a preacher or somebody in church to be effective, they've got to they got to get hear they've got to get to your to your heart you know so I think as a songwriter and as an artist um I'm always thinking of connecting and I think that's why gospel is so closely linked to soul music you know because it's not that different it's like all of those soul musicians came out of the church and they just brought that and they just Switch from talking about the love for God, you know, and talking about love for a woman or love for people, or you know, and um, so I mean, a huge, huge impact. I mean, it was also the first place where I saw um, call and response and and people interacting, you know, with the audience for lack of better words. You know, the congregation was a was my first audience where I could see like, oh you do this and they respond and you, you know, so it taught me so many things and it's is such a huge part of what I do still. It's
5: really cool to see how your move was so evident in your work, especially with the release of Gumbo and a few other of your uh, solo albums. Mm-hmm. And with that, how do you think the move impacted your success as an artist? Do you think it had, like, do you think you just saw this, Major switch in your career path, or how did how did that end up working? Yeah,
3: I think I think it was just like letting go. You know, in yeah. LA, I felt like I had to compete so much. It was like, and I was in one of the biggest bands of all time. So I'm in the midst of that too, and it's like, all right, well, Maroon is killing. I need to be, and 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 it was that driving it as a, as opposed to creative driving it, and then trying to make whatever I create successful. I was trying to just be successful and then create and to be successful. And I think that was the biggest thing. New Orleans is gifting curses that we don't care. You know, it's like just make something incredible, just be great. Whatever you do, just be great. And I think that's always been uh, like the spirit here. So for me, it was like I, I had a song called Claustrophobic on Gumbo, but it was really about getting everything away and like sitting in my own thing. And um, it, it, uh, That's, I mean, it's it's been an amazing move for me. That's when everything started to switch around for me uh, as far as my solo career is concerned because I really got to lock in and not be distracted,
0: you know.
4: Kind of transitioning. There's
0: a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time.
2: Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God,
4: Um, I'm one of those people that loves to watch YouTube videos. I love watching Colors, yes. it's one of my favorite <laughs> channels. It's just so soothing to watch. I love yeah. watching Tiny Music Desk, et cetera, which you've been a part of all of them. And as being on both sides of the music industry in terms of songwriting and producing, as well as performing, Um, How do you feel about live music in terms of how it's being presented on YouTube and different shows like that? Do you have like a more affinity for it or do you prefer to be behind the scenes doing songwriting, producing, etc.? What are you more drawn to?
3: Me, no live. I mean, you know, I got my first Grammy from a live album. You know, like I've always done live albums. I'm a musician first. I tell people like I just happen to start singing and writing songs. My only dream in the beginning was just to play for the biggest artists in the world. I just want to play keys for the biggest artists in the world. I never was thinking about being an artist myself. Um, so live is always, I always come back to that. Um, and I, I do love how YouTube gives these platforms where that can be shown. It's so crazy. I was just watching, I mean, this is not even because of this interview, but like just yesterday I was watching somebody has my first solo performance ever on youtube i just found it yesterday and i was like yo this is the first time i performed as a solo artist and um that's beautiful i mean i think that's amazing that's not i didn't post it you know i have no desire to take it down it's like that should live that that should live you know so I, i love that um we have that type of platform where we can showcase that that type of thing
4: I love that it memorializes moments like that that in your career where you can say oh that was just a show for me but for this person it meant something enough that they had to you know reproduce it put it on the internet and say like this moment changed me so right
3: cool. and what's so crazy is they they could i guess youtube this was an old video that they had to post a few years later because i don't think youtube was even popping at the time yeah. so it's crazy. <laughs>
5: so other than that first solo moment do you have any other specific um live performances that have been documented that stand out to you any favorites come to mind
3: um yeah i mean we did we did uh we recorded it we didn't release it but we recorded a live album at um essence fest in new orleans that was kind of a full circle moment to me because essence fest is where i watched a lot of my favorites as a kid like that was my that was the closest i could get to them to see them perform in person and because it was a festival it it allowed so many and it's a r&b and soul festival so i was seeing all my favorites you know at one time um so doing that live performance was a big one for me we just recently um sold out the um uh the kennedy center in dc and uh it's such a prestigious place and um and uh that was that was amazing as well like just the feeling in that building especially after the pandemic people hadn't been out it just felt like it was it was it was a heavy, a heavy spirit in there, you know, it was a vibe for sure.
4: So speaking of the pandemic, it's extremely evident through messaging and themes, inspiration behind your albums, gumbo specifically, that you have strong ties to your hometown. Aside from your phenomenal feats in the music industry, how do you feel like those ties manifest in your personal life through work with your community, et cetera?
3: You know, I didn't have to move back to New Orleans. I, you know, it's like I was doing just fine in LA. Um, but I felt like it was more. I mean, legacy was the word that kept Ringing in my head, like, all right, you could live here and just be successful in LA. Great, but but what is what what more? What are you leaving? You know, what are you? How are you? You know, uh, you know, paying that forward. And 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 a, a big answer to that was for me to come home and kind of figure out some of the things that I didn't have when I was growing up here. Like, uh, one of the main things was like trying to build a culture here and show that it was possible from here you know, like not having to go to LA, not having to go to New York, you know, um, or Atlanta, like you can be here and and be successful. And what I realized is talk is cheap, you know, and people like to see you do it. So part of that was me locking in and showing the possibility. Like, yeah, I made this album here. Yeah, this album won a Grammy right here. Like we, you can do it, you know, and um, you know, some things we're doing like with uh, Buddy Bolden's house, Um, I'm renovating uh, a jazz legends house, um, and we're going to make part of it a museum, and the other part of it is going to be an event center where we teach kids about production, publishing, uh, engineering, uh, um, also being an attorney, like the, the, the law of it, Outside, everything outside of performance, basically. I want to focus because when I was a kid in New Orleans, you could learn how to play a horn, you could learn how to play, performance was no problem, but Nobody taught me the business. Nobody taught me about songwriting. Nobody taught taught me about publishing. Uh, So we're really focusing on that. And, you know, that's my start. You know, I realize I can't do everything. I'm one person, but I just know how powerful it is to just inspire one person to inspire more people. And I think I link. I think of it that way uh, more than anything is just, uh, you know, helping as many as I can to continue that you know, that
4: mission. That's incredible. Especially giving kids the kind of the stepping stones to being in charge of their own career their own passions. That's incredible. Especially
5: being so personally involved in the community, you know, not just like, you know, all too often I feel like there are just big donations, nameless things like that. And I feel like you're so into actually working with people face-to-face. It's so inspiring. Thank you. So of course, as we wrap up this uh, episode, you've clearly had ample success with both your professional and personal life. And we've seen that you've released new music over the last few days and you're releasing a music video tomorrow. What upcoming projects are you working on and what is next for you that you can tell us?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I can tell you, but I <laughs> uh, there's like a movie that I'm working on, uh, Scoring. Uh, that's gonna come out at some point. Uh, there's new music for me. Uh, we're gearing up. I mean, this this music that we're dropping. Whether uh, the the thing that I released the other day was ready to love. It was actually just uh, from a, th- a theme song that I that I am on uh, the show Ready to Love on on network. Uh, people kept asking for that full song, so I just finished it and finally put it out. Um, but yeah, we're working on new music. Please don't walk away. My current single is the video that's coming out tomorrow. And um, new music soon, you know, like a new, a new album. Uh, That's what I'm working on right now. And, and honestly, you know, that's what my focus is on. It's like, I'm locked in trying to, trying to say something, you know, this year.
4: So lastly, what advice can you leave our listeners with about authenticity and success in such a competitive industry?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think authenticity is really all you have. I mean, I think that's where you have to start now um, because you know, I tell people this is the greatest time in the world to be a creative because there's so much access. I mean, like we said, there was no YouTube when I was first trying to figure it out. I wish I could have typed in like, you know, how to do this or how to do that or how, you know what I mean? Which I do that now as an adult, you know, I wish I had it as a kid. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, because it's the greatest time to be a creative, there is a lot of clutter. There's so many people because you have access, you can put your own music up. You don't need this. You used to need a record label, you used to need this. Um, So literally the only thing that cuts you through is being authentic because that's what people can connect to. And I think uh, it's really all about finding your audience today and building that uh, as opposed to, you know, the strategy used to be, let's go after everyone. Uh, but I think now it's more about getting your people and for you to have people that last um, you you have to be authentic I mean that's what they're going to connect to and I think because there's so much access uh, people can easily weed out who's not being real who's not being authentic I think it's much easier to see these days you know uh, audience didn't used to talk about first week sales and and all of this you know it's like so much information that people just know what's going on so Um, I know that when I decided to be fully authentic is when it unlocked everything for me. So uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, And it's what helps you cut through.
5: That's fantastic. Yeah, authenticity is definitely a huge theme on this podcast. So our listeners are going to love that. PJ, we are so honored to have had you on the show. And we wanted to thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk with us today. I know your wisdom has resonated with us and will with our listeners. Um, His new video for Please Don't Walk Away debuts tomorrow. So make sure to look out for that. You can listen to PJ's work on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to music. And you can find him on Instagram at PJ Morton and on TikTok at the same name. Thank you so much again. All
3: right. Thank you. all I appreciate it.